What a joyous opportunity it is to come together this morning to have lifted up our voices in such exalting praises to God, to have the opportunity to fellowship one with another in the most precious and holy faith, to be there as an encouraging force for the world about us. As we read in 1 Corinthians 11, when you and I surround the Lord's table as we shall do shortly by the blessing and grace of God, we shall proclaim the Lord's death until He come. What a joyous day we've been blessed with already with the prettiness of the surroundings about us, a testimony of God's great handiwork. But as we've gathered at this point in our lesson to have an opportunity to look deeply within the pages of God's wonderful and majestic Word. I'd invite your attention this morning to certain passages to be found in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. As you can see by virtue of the title, we shall consider the mouth of the just and the mouth of the wicked. It perhaps goes without saying that our topic this morning shall surround the subject of language, of speech, of the words that you and I may select and choose to use. And as we do that, that we might be strengthened and encouraged to make the choices of language that are pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. By way of introduction, would it not be fair to make some of the following observations? We are encouraged so deeply to love the Word of God. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. To quote but two of the verses of the longest chapter in the Old Testament, the 119th Psalm. As those passages set before us, though, the preciousness and power of the word of God, is it not also reasonable to say that when you and I look deeply into its word, when we scrutinize and use it daily to guard and guide our ways, there are times when the words of the Bible encourage us in what we are already doing that's good. Did not Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And hence we may be involved in a good work, but God's word encourages to abound therein, to increase our usage and our activity in that which is noble and worthy and good. But it also certainly is true that when we are amiss from the Word of God, God in His Word will step on our toes. He will rebuke, correct, and reprove us rather directly. In fact, in that famous text of 2 Timothy 3, we read in verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. Did you notice with me there that he mentioned correct, reprove, and rebuke? When you and I are in need of correction, God through his word shall supply it. This morning as we consider our lesson, let us also make note that that correction also includes our language, our speech. When the words that we employ are not as they ought to be in God's sight, His Word challenges and corrects us in that very way. Notice with me some further thoughts from the book of Proverbs, especially on that point. One of the words that's frequently used in the book of Proverbs is the word forward. F-R-O-W-A-R-D, forward. That's a rather unusual word for us in that that's not a word that you and I typically would employ. It has passed by and large from common usage in the English language. However, in the King James Version of the Bible, it is used often. I've listed some of the passages in which it appears. 
In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 12, we on that occasion learn that the evil man has forward things that proceed from his mouth. In Proverbs 4, verse 24, we notice an express commandment to put away a forward mouth. Even if we read no further, we gain the impression that whatever forwardness is, it's not good. We're commanded to put it away from us, and it flows out of the mouth of the one who's evil. But what about Proverbs 6, verse 12? We learn that a naughty person, a wicked person, speaks that which is forward. What's more? Notice also in Proverbs 8, verse 13, the very interesting observation that the forward mouth is hated by God. Hated by God. Anytime in the scriptures we encounter that phrase, that position that God hates something, it is to be immediately avoided. It is to be eliminated at all cost. And on this occasion, we notice that the forward mouth is hated by God. But notice a few others that I've listed as well. In Proverbs 16, verse 30. In Proverbs 17, verse 20. In each instance, as forwardness is mentioned, whether it be with respect to a person's speech, or with respect to his life in general, or any particular aspect thereof, it is highly condemned. Perhaps now it would be fair to define this word forward. What does it mean? If you're using a different translation, perhaps the New King James or perhaps the American Standard, you'll notice that the word almost uniformly utilized in place of the word forward is perverse. That which is forward is perverse, it is full of iniquity, and it's that which is ungodly. And thus we have directly the reference that there is forward or ungodly or perverse language that can well be employed. As if all those points were not strong enough in Proverbs 8 verse 8, we are expressly given the following commandment. All the words of thy mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. There even the King James helps us define and identify this word forward. Having introduced or at least made thoughts about that, may I suggest to you that we'll return to Proverbs 10 verses 31 and 2 and use that in the very last comment I made on that sheet there. Namely, that let's consider more carefully forward speech. What might be some things that is common in society about us, and if we aren't careful, can even creep their way into my life and yours, language which is forward, language and wording and phrases and clauses which are themselves perverse, and all the while society, of course, condones them, approves them and uses them freely, when all the while they actually are a very condemnation to the things revealed in the Word of God. And thus, back to Proverbs 10, verses 31 and 2. The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the forward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh forwardness. We learn there in that last phrase that it is the mouth of the wicked that spews forth forwardness, perverseness, that which is not pleasing in the sight of God. May we at this point then develop a listing a set of ideas that will help us determine when a word or a set of language is that which is forward and when it's not. May we first, though, in a positive way, emphasize the great blessing that's ours by virtue of being able to use words and language and communication. For after all, by that very character, and it is a grand blessing, we are able to express the deepest feelings of the heart, 
We are able to show to those that we love our feelings toward them. We're also able to also, those we love, correct them using our kind words when that correction's necessary. Language is such a grand blessing. Might we remember in the Bible how frequently it's spoken of that God conversed and spoke with men. And that men on occasion, of course, are able by virtue of their communication to speak things that are godly in character. Doesn't this also teach us that some, some speech and some language is just, as we noted in Proverbs 10, 31, but some is forward. You and I would do well to keenly make ourselves aware of when language is just and when it's forward and try to amplify our pursuit of the former and eschew at all costs the latter. For we've seen already that God hates forward speech. It is not pleasing to Him. It is an abomination to Him. He hates it. What then might be the specifics of what does God hate? I put together this listing from several passages in the Scriptures that'll help us identify the means associated with forward speech. May we first of all make this conclusion that forward speech would include the following. The frivolous or flippant use, being disrespectful that is, of those things or beings that are divine or sacred. When God has by His character and His divine will set forth that which He has sanctified to be holy, and men by their language disrespectfully treated otherwise, that is forward language. Now that alone, of course, is a rather significant observation, isn't it? That would include various divine personalities like God Himself, like the Son, Christ Jesus, and like the Holy Spirit, and also the divine matter set forth upon earth, considerations of the church and things that are holy by their nature. May we not remember that in Exodus 20, verse 7, God expressly in the third of the Ten Commandments made this rather pointed commandment. He said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Isn't it significant that as you and I contemplate the Ten Commandments, they were not to make any idols and bow before them. They were to have no other gods before Him. They were to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. They were to commit no murder, no adultery, no thievery. But yet, amongst those commandments, you also don't take my name in vain. To God, that was just as significant as the other nine. To God, it was just as imperative and just as pertinent to respect the character of His name as it was to not commit murder as it was to not commit adultery. And yet so often you and I may be aware that God's name is treated flippantly, frivolously, disrespectfully, and called in such a way that it's nothing short of blasphemous. But yet in Leviticus 19 verse 12, as if that former commandment wasn't enough, God also reiterated it and even strengthened it in some ways. For in Leviticus 19.12, God expressly said, Thou shalt not profane my holy name. Any usage which is not in accordance to the high and respectful character of it, God condemned. It may be at this point would be an interesting observation that the ancient Hebrews took that commandment and that concept so seriously that they purposefully refused to pronounce the name of God in the Hebrew language. That's interesting, isn't it? 
they were so fearful of mispronouncing it and hence taking it flippantly that they purposefully never chose to use it in a, in a way that would accord to the way that it was actually written. That's a rather gigantic statement, at least in principle, for, for us today, isn't it? A world that seems in so many ways to care little about how God's name is used, the context in which it's employed, and the blasphemous way in which it's presented. Also notice with me in Colossians 3 verse 8 in the New Testament. There Paul expressly speaking to Christians said that in regard to language, two things were to have no part in the language of a Christian. One, blasphemy. Two, filthy communication is to be put away from you. Now that word blasphemy means railing. It would include, among other things, the improper usage of the name of God, divine characteristics thereof. So even in the New Testament, this is command commanded to be abstained from. It's not merely an Old Testament concept. But yet, that isn't the only kind of perverse or forward language. Consider yet another. There are words that can be used and employed that have ugly or dirty connotations to them. Meanings that perhaps behind them are not at all noble, worthy, perhaps even good. Those, of course, also would be forward, perverse, ungodly by the very nature of them. They should be put away from us. Remember again the powerful thrust of that same text in Colossians 3.8, put away filthy language. Perhaps the strongest statement of all found in Ephesians 4.29 this is an absolute commandment. It is not, of course, that the Bible refuses to touch the nature of the words we use. Paul there said, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Is that which you and I speak, that which ministers grace to those who hear us? Paul said it ought to be. And he began that verse by again forcefully commanded, No communication. Corrupting character should proceed from our mouths. God watches very closely that which we say. He watches very carefully the words we choose and the kinds of language that we speak. These two, of course, have very powerfully set before us a host of ideas ought never to be spoken by us, but there is yet a third that we may include as well. Mentioned twice in the New Testament, once in the Sermon on the Mount by our Savior in Matthew 5, and yet again in the closing chapter of the book of James. It has to do with that idea of swearing. That is to say, making oaths by which we call upon other things or beings to serve as witness to what we say. The basic teaching of the Bible is that our word ought to be upright and true without us having to call on witnesses from heaven or otherwise to back that up. We ought not speak things that are not true. And thus everything we say ought to have that element of honesty and truth about it. But if those are the ideas that we have so easily seen to be perverse, let us spend a few moments and look at some examples that may well challenge us as we listen to them in society about us and as we try to make certain we do not become guilty of using them. Remember, the mouth of the just as it stands opposed to the mouth of the forward. As I list these on the screen before you, perhaps I could also say at this point that I can make copies of this available to anyone that might wish to have one, if you'd like to more carefully study some of these matters for yourself. 
But as we list them, many of these will be words that I'm not comfortable with pronouncing, and so I will just ask you to read them. As you consider the, the various ones that we present, notice I begin by some of those very matters in which the name of God Himself is compromised and blasphemed in its usage. It now has become so common when a person is shocked or surprised, when they're caught off guard, the first three words out of their mouth is the first one I've listed. Now, in light of our earlier statement that God's name must always be employed with an understanding of the great being who is being addressed and the great one who is being described, in almost all instances they have no immediate concept that His name is being used in that way. Such a usage of the name of God is irreverent, it's disrespectful, and it's condemned in the Bible. That would be one example of perverse or forward language. But that only leads us rather quickly to the second one. And you'll notice out beside these, I've put in parentheses the number corresponding to the previous listing of three items that condemn this usage because the next one is so easily related to it. If you take the opportunity to look up the word golly, you'll notice that it is merely a softened form of the word God. It was originally thus merely a euphemism for the word God. And the word euphemism is just a fancy term that means to take a given idea but state it in a way that is softer. It sounds more pleasing to the ear. Thus, this same word given and it again identifies God and is derived from His name. When it's used in a disrespectful or frivolous fashion, which it seems that word always is, it too thus is condemned, it's forward, it's perverse. It is that which takes the reverence of God and compromises it in a way that's wholly unacceptable. But notice thirdly, this one, identical in fashion, take the word God and again soften it. D is one of the harshest sounding letters in the English language. Quite often, it's not unusual for that letter to be softened to another form. Here is but one example where that has occurred. If you notice that word, gosh, that again is so often utilized and employed, it would seem, again, in statements of surprise or when a person, again, is startled or surprised or shocked, that word is used and it's another softened form of the word God. Yet again, we notice this word is forward. It's perverse by virtue of the principle of number one that we studied just a few moments earlier. Again, as we consider the various usages of these, it becomes a rather noble question as to the thought you and I must have as we look intently at what is just and what is forward. Consider that last one on that same sheet. If you notice, the very dictionary has, when it makes usages of things like good gracious or good night or those other usages, yet one other way that the word God is shortened or euphemized is to change it to good. And in these instances, yet one more time, these words, though perhaps so often spoken in ways that have bypassed the thought of society and where the words came from, they originated from the word God. And when used as exclamations or interjections or another form of oaths, they themselves, again, are condemned by the very same observations we've already made. It's an interesting thing to notice the derivation, the thoughts behind many of the words that are employed. Yet again, we see that in times of pleasure or satisfaction, this irreverent usage of God's Word is placed before some other item or word, be it stars, heavens, 
And again, that by nature of what it is, is a condemned thing. Our language is certainly an impressive matter to consider, isn't it? But let us look at yet some more items. How about number five? It is not only that the name of the Heavenly Father is compromised by language. It quite often is true of the name of the Holy Son Himself, of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard on television, perhaps, athletes or other individuals, when they find themselves in circumstances that are involved in great controversy, that even the name Jesus is used blasphemously? As an interjection, as a mild set of oaths, perhaps in displeasure or anger. May we remember that in Matthew 1, verse 21, to Joseph, God said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That name Jesus then should be respected. It should be honored and revered and not used blasphemously, not used in a way that calls into question the identity of the Son of God. And notice that as we make that statement, it leads directly to the next one as well. Take that word Jesus and slice it in two. Take the first word, the first two letters, and respell them. You have another set of interjections, another set of ideas that so frequently seem to appear, especially in years gone by. I've listed them there for you as just G, or notice also, perhaps followed with whiz. Those two, in terms of their origination, come from the very name Jesus. They have taken that name and mutilated it. They've taken it and, in fact, abandoned the honor and respect it originally had and now presented in a disrespectful, irreverent, frivolous, and sometimes even directly blasphemous fashion. That means that part number one, our identity of principle number one, condemns these just as surely as it did the first five that we considered. But notice number six as I've listed that one. This one directly relates to that fourth one that we considered earlier. Sometimes God now is not used with respect to these mild oaths or affirmations. But consider these statements such as, My stars or my heavens, when used again in a fashion in which an exclamation quite often expresses shock or surprise, the heavens do not belong to either you or me. The God of heaven owns them and is in absolute control of them. And those statements thus are plainly untrue. And yet, as to use them in that way, we thus are making an untrue assertion, an untrue statement, and hence, they would fall under the condemnation of absolute lying. May we notice that language like that, though society quite often would, in fact, hold up the hands of those that may use them, you and I would see from the Word of God that such is not a proper usage of our speech, our language. Perhaps next we enter into a set of words or phrases that again are utilized so very frequently. I can well remember in school so many would tend to use phrases like these next few that we shall consider and they considered really with very little thought the language they were using. In fact, at times they thought it was funny, cute. It was to be used to enjoy the laughter of others. It is no laughing matter. The word damn does occur in the King James Version of the Bible. In one place, for example, in the Great Commission of Mark 16, verse 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. 
that kind of usage of that word is, of course, exceedingly right and proper. But might we ask, who is doing the damning there? God is, and He has the right. For the word damn means to eternally condemn. What human anywhere at any time has the right to pronounce eternal condemnation on anybody? God is the judge. He and His Son shall in fact bring forth judgment on that great and final day. No human has that right. And then for a person to say the word damn in such a fashion as to pronounce that judgment on someone, whether they know that's what the word means or not is irrelevant. That's what they're proclaiming. That word is thus absolutely condemned in its usage in that way. Notice, though, that it relates, of course, to the very next two. For might I ask you to notice that in terms of these curses, there are those who will, in fact, make direct reference of sending someone to hell. Now, again, who has that right? Does man have it? Can man, in fact, by, by his opinion and by his application, choose to send someone to that eternal place? Well, again, only God will make that final decision. Thus, it is presuming to put ourselves in the role of God to pronounce damnation on anybody. By God's Word, we can tell them, of course, by virtue of the sin in their life, that they will perhaps meet His damnation. But it is not our opinion. It is not that which rests upon no greater power than myself or you. When it's a thus saith the Lord, that's a proper usage of such words. These that are curses are absolutely to be omitted from the language of that person interested in pleasing God. And what about the last one on that sheet? There are those who would in fact presume to speak God's presumption of damnation on others. What audacity they might have to claim to tell or order or command God to condemn someone to hell. That'll be God's decision. For God knows the heart and not you or me. Is it not the case he's the great heart searcher, Acts 1.24? Is it not the case that he can look deeply within to the heart of a man and know that which is right and that which is not there, 1 Samuel 16.7? And thus, for you or me or any other human to command God to condemn someone, oh, let it never be. These kinds of perversity in language, as you've already heard me note more than once, are exceedingly common. I'm sure we each hear it far more than we would like. But may we be reminded of the seriousness of our speech and our language and look even to some more examples as well. For you see, these previous ones that we've just listed seem rather harsh, and men in their usages of them have softened them. That is to say, soften them in such a way that they do not sound nearly as difficult or as disastrous. For instance, look at the first one. If you take that phrase that was the, just the last one on that previous slide, God, with the word damn used with it, and soften that, you immediately arrive at the first ones listed here. And they are thus condemned for exactly the same reasons that those last ones on the previous slide were. We are not in position to pronounce condemnation eternally on anyone. Only God can do that. But when we make note of that very fact, it does notice that the second one listed here is such that it is the most often used softer form of that word damn. Notice that again you take out the M and N, Keep the N, I might add, but just replace the M with an R. 
And that so often is perceived as funny or cute or appropriate when it is merely the same word, slightly softened, and hence is condemned as that which is forward in the, in the Word of God. In the third place, there are words, of course, that when used identically have thoughts that are ugly and mean and inappropriate and thoughts behind them that in fact often relate to various parts of the body when used in a disrespectful fashion, that too, of course, is a condemned thing. I've listed a whole slide of them here in that third one. Those words typically, when used as interjections, when used in place of the word damn, they by their very connotation are condemned. Now again, might we note that these words, when used in proper contexts, are perfectly acceptable, for they convey right language and proper thoughts. But when they're merely used in place of that former word, they have the same thrust and meaning. It's just the person has attempted to soften the forcefulness of it. But we are not at liberty to take away the thrust of God's word when it relates to matters involving that which he has already condemned. The fourth line lists various words that, of course, are ugly. Words that, though society may pose presentation of them, they are, in fact, that which is absolutely vulgar. They're profane. They're words that, when utilized in ways that typically are thought to be funny, they're not only not funny, they are actually calling the abomination of God in regard to the language. Those that I've listed, as they have reference to various activities, various parts that may have sexual connotations, we may immediately notice that though that idea is one that men, even boys and girls and younger ones, are tempted perhaps to use, may we be wise enough, noble and holy enough to understand where those words come from and what they really mean. The words we speak do have meaning. And we would do well to know the meaning of those words, what they stand for and the connotation they have, or else we, in speaking them, may be giving forth meanings we never intended. We may be sending forth messages that wholly were unknown, but that still doesn't excuse us. That does not mean that we are not at fault. In the fifth place on that sheet, you'll notice that some of those... And there's a word left out of that first one. I can hold a letter left out of that first one. I can see it already. All of those are instances where the word no or yes is combined with the name of some aspect of the God of heaven. As you can see by the examples using the word Lord in conjunction with them, again, quite often either using his name in a directly blasphemous fashion or asking him to back up an interjection or an oath that's made irreverently and disrespectfully. Notice that the word Lord would also go with the first one or the word damn either one. Whenever we're employing that word, we should understand that it means to eternally condemn. It has no other meaning than that. And in so doing, it is such that it must be used exceedingly cautiously for only God can perform that kind of activity and that level of judgment. The very last one on that, sh on that screen, on that sheet, leads us to notice that when we noted earlier the very first one that we had listed, in which quite often an interjection or surprise a person will make the phrase or the statement of the name of God, Oh, my God. 
Well, even if they leave out the word God, just as an attempt to excuse themselves when in fact they mean the same thing, then the thought has crossed their mind and they are thus standing just as guilty. It is an interesting thought to realize that these words, if we open our dictionary, we will find that their originations are exactly as we've noted this morning. And as such, we must be cautious about our speech, indeed very so much about our language. As we've listed each of these examples, it would then seem that a conclusion is in order. When you and I appreciate the thrust of the examples we've listed, the ideas in place about the carefulness with which we should use our speech and language, Proverbs 10 verses 31 and 32 still reads, The mouth of the just bringeth forth wisdom, but the forward tongue shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh forwardness. We might recall that James did remind us in James chapter 3 that the tongue is a world of iniquity. It's a fire, in fact, described in that place. And you and I must labor intently to ever call it into practice and to try our best to tame it. James did say that the tongue can no man tame, but that does not mean that we must not try. We must ever labor incessantly to guard our speech and our language so that no corruptness spews forth from our mouth and so that that which we speak will bring grace to those that hear. And as we close our lesson this morning, the final text taken from the lips of our Savior Himself in the 12th chapter of Matthew as He spoke about idle language, as you can read it there with me, Every idle word shall men give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. If it's the case that even our idle words shall be brought forth and mentioned on the day of judgment, what about the words that are forward? What about the words that are perverse? Doesn't it go without saying that if the idle ones are going to be brought forth and used in the terms of our judgment, then certainly the forward ones will. May we thus listen closely to the language we speak and to think about them before we employ perverseness, forwardness in our speech and our language. This morning, we understand that the Bible sets before us the thoughts about every aspect of our life and how to make it pleasing unto God. That involves our thinking, it involves our actions, and it also involves our language. As we each strive day by day thus to bring ourselves nearer to that which God would have us to be, let us think about our speech and our language. Are you a Christian this morning? If these words or others like them have slipped from our lips, we need to beseech the God of heaven for His forgiveness. And we need to make appropriate application of the blood of His Son to cleanse those sins from our life. This morning, if you've never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, He beseeches, in fact requires of you to believe upon Him as the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Come before Him by the nature of confession, confessing His sweet name and all of its greatness. And finally, be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could aid you in doing that, we'd be happy to do so. If you've become a Christian at some former time, but perhaps the deeds of your life, maybe even the language you've used, has not been appropriate, it has been forward, make you the appropriate response to God today. If those matters have been of a private nature, go to your Heavenly Father in prayer. He will hear and He will forgive. If they've been public, Make the appropriate amends to those who've heard you use those words and let them know you intend to not do so again. Today, if we could be of assistance to you in your response to the gospel, we'd be happy to do that in either way appropriate, while even now, while together we stand and while we sing.